tonight's reading is in two parts. Uh, first of all, from uh, the book of Luke. On page 1062, Luke chapter 24, verses 50 to 53. And then after that, page 1092, Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 12. But first of all, Luke. Luke 24, verse 50. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. And then Acts chapter 1, reading from verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you're a Christian and you feel life is rather out of control, then the antidote to that is to appreciate the significance of the ascension of Christ. But what is the ascension? The ascension was when Jesus, um, with his transformed and glorified body, left earth and went to heaven. The the ascension is one of the uh, principal events in the life of Jesus, one that uh, has a day to its own in the Christian calendar when it's celebrated. So if you think of um, the principal events in the Christian year that we celebrate, they are, of course, uh, Jesus' birth, which is celebrated on Christmas Day, Jesus' death, which is celebrated on Good Friday, Jesus' resurrection, celebrated on Easter Day, Jesus' ascension on Ascension Day, and Jesus' sending of his Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And finally, Jesus' return, celebrated at Advent, usually the end of November, beginning of December. Now why then, given it is one of the top six fixtures in what you might call the Jesus calendar, Why is it that amongst the average uh, Christian so little is known about it? Well, one reason is that the others, Easter, Pentecost, Advent, are all celebrated on a Sunday. And although Christmas Day varies, it is, like Good Friday, a public holiday. So Christians are free to turn up at church and celebrate it. Ascension Day is always on a Thursday. Why? Well, 
it's because that Jesus' ascension took place 40 days after his resurrection. His resurrection took place on the first day of the week, a Sunday, so the ascension took place on a Thursday. And it has done, and it always will do, until Christ returns. Now, given the fact that most of you are otherwise, you know, gainfully employed, as they say, on a Thursday, you may kind of um, have missed it. Although I do usually try either the week before or the week after to at least at one service um, teach something about the ascension of Christ so that we get a full picture of uh, the framework that is Jesus's coming and returning and everything that happens in between those two events. But I suspect there's another reason why the ascension is um, perhaps not at the forefront of our minds, and that's simply because uh, for the average Christian, it might be thought of as a rather incredible event. Incredible, not in the sense of uh, being amazing, but in the sense of being unbelievable. After all, what we're asked to believe in the ascension of Jesus, in the passages which Mark read to us, is that Jesus was able to defy gravity and to somehow kind of go up without any means of propulsion. And we watch him, if it was in here, going through the roof, literally. No propulsion. Well, not even David Copperfield, I reckon, could do that. And then, not just through the roof, but up into the sky, hundreds of feet, maybe as far as 2,000 feet. And that does seem a bit far-fetched. It could feel a little bit sort of comic, a bit sci-fi. Now, obviously, we've no experience of seeing anybody do that. And so we tend to think, is this for real? Did this really happen? We know that when we read particularly the Psalms in the Old Testament, that you know, their picture of the universe, their cosmology, ask Graham Kirchhoff what that means, um, just means picture of the universe really, uh, that their picture of the universe was three decades. You had water above, you have water beneath, and you are on terra firma, solid ground in between. And the reason why that was their picture of the universe was because that's what they could observe. They noticed that it rained, that water comes from above. They also noticed that at times it seems to kind of flood and water bubbles up from beneath. I think we'd all probably think the same, most of us, apart from the sort of scientifically minded. We would probably have that kind of picture in our head because that's what they observed. And it's easy to see how, with that kind of um, picture, that the ascension might well sort of fit into the realms of mythology in some people's minds. 
Now, to label something as a myth doesn't mean that it doesn't contain truth, but that truth is not literal or historical, but is really simply moral, psychological, or spiritually true. It does give us values rather than facts. And myths occur in ancient literature, but we're also familiar with them in modern literature. In the sense, for example, of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. They fall into the category of myth. They didn't happen, but they contain truth. They contain, as he says, the deep magic. How it is that God is able to forgive. So, it's suggested that the early Christians... Um, that they wanted to emphasise that Jesus had higher status than anyone else and that everybody else should look up to Jesus. And so they simply invented the Ascension story. Well, I guess that is one way of trying to resolve the tension between science and scripture but it comes at great cost in that it completely undermines the historical basis of Christianity. Christianity is a historical religion. All that God has done in our world to convince us of his existence and his love towards us has been done in the public domain before witnesses, so it can be recorded and passed on down the centuries. So I don't think for one minute that the mythical understanding can be left unchallenged. So let's do some thinking. First of all, just because something happens to be unique doesn't mean it didn't happen. After all, if God were to come to earth, he has got to do something different from everybody else in order for us to kind of twig who he is. And so he comes and he does certain miraculous things. And he says stuff which kind of really has the ring of truth about it. And without such things, it would be difficult for us to realise that we had had a divine visitor, that God had turned up in human form amongst us. So in a sense, we would expect some unique events to occur if God arrived. Now, they may have had a different sort of understanding of the universe than we do, but actually, that's not relevant. We might be tempted to think that Jesus just um, carried on, going up and up and up, and that if we had a powerful enough telescope, like Graham's, that um, we could kind of look and somewhere in outer space, there he is, still going up and up and up, except it would be out and out and out from our perspective, accelerating away from Earth on presumably the way to heaven. But that is not actually what is reported. You need to read the text. So it would be helpful to just look at Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 12. I think we'd find them on uh, about page 1092. 
and we read in verse 9 that he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. So it's not a question of going up and up and up and up until you know we can't see him anymore either with or without the aid of a telescope. No, what the eyewitnesses report is that he was raised a few hundred, possibly at most 2,000 feet above them and he went into the clouds and they were unable to see him anymore. And when those clouds passed over, he was gone. He was not there anymore. So the early Russian cosmonaut who went into space and proclaimed that uh, on his return that he'd neither seen God nor heaven was looking in the wrong place. Just as the children in C.S. Lewis's classic entered a parallel world called Narnia through the wardrobe, so in the cloud Jesus entered another reality, which we call heaven. A reality, though, which is unseen by the human eye. Now Luke, in these four verses, in this uh, verses uh, 9 to, um, to 12, he emphasises five times that the eyewitnesses watched him go. So verse 9, before their very eyes a cloud hid him from their sight. Verse 10, looking intently into the sky. Verse 11, they're told, why stand there looking? He will come back as you've seen him go. Now we know of Luke who wrote these uh, uh, these two books, the Gospel that bears his name and the Acts of the Apostles. We know from the outset of Luke's Gospel that um, his was a well-researched, accurate, reliable account. So his reader would know the certainty, he says, of what has happened amongst them. In fact, where Luke can be checked out against the literature of his day, or the archaeological findings that uh, relate to his day, he is always, and I'd underline the word always, found to be accurate. He even gets the titles of various Roman provincial officers correct, and that's when they change the name, you know, every sort of less than a decade. Each time he gets it right. So if you can check out the background details, it's more likely that the details you can't check are similarly accurate. So what is, I think, quite astonishing is when you're talking about Jesus ascending to heaven, that he writes in an incredibly matter-of-fact way. He doesn't write with any hype. He doesn't write with great exaggeration. You know, it's, it's almost downplaying it. It is just a very matter-of-fact um, report of what eyewitnesses saw. Now, although Luke's the only New Testament writer to record the ascension, other New Testament writers like Peter, Paul, and the writer to the Hebrews do presume it. They have various terms which they uh, indicate they knew it had happened. Gone into heaven, taken up in glory, gone through the heavens, 
now exalted above heaven. They're just some of the terms which they use which show they did know that this had happened. Now people sometimes try and suggest that there's um, a contradiction between the Gospel account and the Acts account. So for example, they'll try and say that uh, the Gospel mentions he led them out in the vicinity of Bethany and in Acts it says 1.12 when they returned from the Mount of Olives. Well, to think that that's got any mileage just immediately tells you that they haven't actually ever been there. The Mount of Olives, like most mountains, has an eastern side and a western side. On the eastern side is Bethany, the place where Jesus' friends Mary, Martha and Lazarus lived. And on the western side, the side which faces today the old city of Jerusalem, that is um, the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives, which is where the Garden of Gethsemane is. So, it's not difficult to harmonise those two kind of statements. If Jesus approached the top of the Mount of Olives via Bethany, the house of his friends. Even a little phrase that we have here where they are referred to, the disciples, as men of Galilee, spoken by two men or angels, that is also supportive of Luke's veracity. For they were by then all men from Galilee because the one disciple who wasn't from Galilee, Judas Iscariot who is from Kirioth in Judah, was of course no longer with them having committed suicide. So just to recap, so 40 days after the resurrection Jesus ascended in front of eyewitnesses from the Mount of Olives, having reached there via the village of Bethany. Now, have you ever wondered why it is Jesus just simply, why he didn't just simply go straight from death to heaven on Easter Sunday? Why did he stay around for another six weeks? And although he appeared to them on at least 12 separate occasions, he wasn't visible to them the whole time during that six weeks. He wasn't in heaven yet, nor was he in hell because he went to heaven after the ascension and he experienced hell when he was on the cross. So where was he when they couldn't see him? Puzzling. So why not go straight to heaven on Easter Sunday? I think there's a number of reasons. If he had, if he had done so, how would we know that he had been raised from the dead. All we'd have is an empty tomb. And there are plenty of ways of trying to explain an empty tomb away. No, he needed to have the resurrection. He needed to be seen so that we would know that God approved of his death as a way in which God's attitude towards us could be changed because his justice has been satisfied by the voluntary substitution of his perfect son in our place instead of us having to experience 
hell, separation from God. If he didn't rise from the dead and if he wasn't seen by people, we wouldn't know whether God approved of that and that it worked. Second reason would be that in that six-week period, he wanted enough eyewitnesses to clock that he'd escaped death and that he'd conquered it. And so there are 550 different people on 12 different occasions who saw, touched, talked and ate with him. And in talking with them, he was teaching them that the whole of the Old Testament had pointed towards this suffering Messiah who would die for the sins of the people and would be raised to life and would actually be in a position of authority in heaven. I guess when you've seen it actually done, you read back and you see, how did I miss that when I read the Old Testament? But that's what the Old Testament is a genuinely Christian testament. It's written pointing forward to Christ. But now, of course, with a risen Christ, all those predictions about um, reaching all nations, where people from every part of the world can come into relationship with God, they all begin to kind of click and make sense. But he was also preparing them for a different kind of relationship with him. Many of them had known him in the flesh for three years at least, face to face, day in, day out. He was tangible. He had a body just like their bodies. Now he was back from the dead, but not to stay. He had a glorified body. It was clearly recognisable in some way. There was some continuity between the body he had of flesh and the body that he now has glorified. They were able to recognise him. And he appeared to them like that, but then he'd disappear. But he knew he was not going to stay with them for more than six weeks. So he appeared and he taught them. Then he disappeared, but not to heaven nor to hell, but he was invisible to them. He was preparing them for a new stage in their relationship with him, one where it would be intimate and personal, but unseen. So in that six weeks that he stayed with them, he was, of course, keeping his promise to them never to leave them, as he told them in the upper room shortly before he died. Now Thomas, the doubting apostle, was probably the first to realise to realise Jesus' invisible presence because Thomas, who had been absent when Jesus first appeared to the other ten, had said things in Jesus' visible absence. And yet, a week later, when Jesus appears again to them all and Thomas is present, Jesus tells Thomas things which Thomas had said the week before when they were gathering together. Jesus appeared to them in groups and was invisibly present in their gatherings at other times. 
But as soon as they started to spread out from Jerusalem, keeping his promise to be with them obviously proves to be difficult. Hence, after the six-week period, Jesus would go and the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, would come to take Jesus' place in their lives. But how would they know that he had gone rather than just disappeared and expected him to reappear again unless there was some significant, visible, physical event? John Stott, in his very useful commentary on Acts, writes, while Jesus' transition from an earthly to a heavenly state did not necessitate going up, going up enabled it to be a public, visible event so that everybody knew he had gone for good. They need not hang around waiting for more resurrection appearances but could prepare for the coming of the Holy Spirit. So, on the Mount of Olives, he is taken up, which is a passive tense, something done to him, just as uh, with his resurrection, he had been raised up, a passive tense, raised up by God, and he blessed them, and they watched him go. Now there are two main lessons which the Ascension, I think, teaches us today. The first is that Jesus will come again, verse 11, the second part. Though it will be public rather than private and will involve millions of people and not just a few. And instead of being localised, it will be like lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to another, we're told in Luke 17. And the second lesson is that they, in the meantime, are to take the gospel global, to be witnesses and not just stargazers. So remember the order of events. There is the ascension, Jesus returns to heaven. There is Pentecost, the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes down from heaven. Then the church are witnesses to this Jesus until what's called the parousia, when Jesus returns. And it's really important to include all those four things and keep them in the right order. Otherwise, we end up with some pretty flaky thinking. So what's Jesus up to now? Well, there is his arrival in heaven. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, Hebrews 12, 2. He went through all the tough stuff because he knew he would win in the end. And his arrival in heaven was like a Roman general leading his triumphant troops through Rome. It's the kind of thing, if you've never seen that, just you know, watch Ben-Hur when it's next on. I mean, it is incredibly an epic event. If you, read, if you watch the, whatever it is, the 1960s version, they're all real people. You know, massive, cost a fortune to produce. But it conveys the splendour of a Roman general with his victory parade. 
and it gives some inclination, as, uh, as some indication of what it is like for Jesus to arrive back in heaven, having completed a successful mission, and he is surrounded by angels and by the Father and the Spirit and, of course, the Christians who lived in the Old Testament, those who were justified by their faith in the Christ they didn't know, but in a God they believed could somehow forgive them. For Jesus, he was going home. He received the Father's welcome. He sat down on the right hand of the Father, which was a position of authority. He left heaven divine, but he returns to heaven both divine and human. And he will be like that forever. So humanity is now part of the Godhead, of the Trinity. Secondly, what's he up to? Well, within 10 days of his arrival, he sends his spirit to take residence in the lives of his followers. So not only would there be a ch character change, that they would be enabled to live holy lives, bearing the fruits of the spirit, but they would also be equipped for this mission by the gifts from this spirit. Then, next we see that in heaven he is a mediator between human beings and God. As the God-man, he, he's perfectly equipped for that role. In one sense, the message of the Bible is all about gaining access to God. In the Old Testament, you might remember that the high priest, on behalf of the people, gained access to the presence of God on earth by sacrificing an animal. The death of the animal took the place of the death of a guilty human being. The animal's blood covered the sins of the people. So having made the sacrifice and offered it, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies. He gained access to the presence of God on earth. That is all just a picture of the reality. What Christ achieved by his sacrifice for sins he gained for us access to the presence of God the Father in heaven. And while he's there, as the perfect God-man, he knows firsthand what it is like to be a human being and he prays to the Father on our behalf. It's as if we petition Christ and he then endorses our petition with his signature and it's passed on to the Father which is why we pray to the Father through the Son, because he's the one who gains us access, in the Spirit, inspired in the right way to pray. And he carries on his ministry and he adds to the church, Acts 2.47. He comforts us, he sustains us, all in the process. He's a pioneer where he's gone, we who follow him go. He blazes a trail. In John 14 too, he goes to prepare a place for us and he goes to prepare our position in heaven. The old order had been God, angels, humans, animals. But now we read the order is God, human believers, angels who are beneath us and animals. He is the ruler. All authority in heaven and earth has been given 
to me, Matthew 28, 18. So he has authority over the church whose body is on earth but whose head is in heaven. And from from Revelation 2 and 3, we learn that uh, he knows about every church and some he causes to flourish and others he puts an end to. He rules the world. Nothing happens which is either not planned or permitted by God. He sustains the universe. His aim is to bring everything under his authority. And all those who have opposed him will be put under him. Psalm 110 tells us all about that. But you have to remember that Psalm 110 was written hundreds of years before Christ ever appeared on earth. And it's cited 20 times in the New Testament. So we're in Christ if we're Christians. And in that sense, we view the world from Christ's perspective. We look at the world and we see that he's in charge, that he will return for us. That is the next really significant event in the grand plan. He will return. In the meantime, we are united with him. We are part of his team and his team is going to win. We witness for him. He uses us to add members to his church. If we die, we go to be with him and we wait for the end of time when he returns to judge all and when he will set up a new heaven and a new earth where we will enjoy a tangible existence with a glorified physical body which is just like his resurrected body. You see, that is reality. That's not fairy tales. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the tangible ascension of Christ into heaven, knowing that he has taken his rightful place as ruler of the entire universe, that he is in control, And all that happens to us does not go unnoticed, does not uh, go wrong. He will have his plans and purposes achieved through his people. And we pray that we might have that perspective of, of the ascension included in the grand picture of Jesus from birth to death, resurrection, ascension, and is coming again. We pray we might live with that, that that might might provide for us a secure and solid framework for understanding life and living it out. In your name we pray. Amen.